Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 8, Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, and we will consider this morning the entirety of this chapter, verses 1 through 13. First Corinthians chapter 8, please follow along as I read this chapter beginning in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Verse seven, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble stumble. Let's go to God once more in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to understand this passage and to know in truth what your servant, the Apostle Paul, spoke by the Spirit all those years ago. And help us more than that, not only to know, but to apply this passage to our lives faithfully. I pray, Father, that this sermon and this passage, this text, Uh, would serve well the life of this particular congregation of your people. Pray that we would be those who do not embrace that kind of knowledge that puffs up, do not know in that way that inflates pride. Pray, Father, that we would be those who give ourselves to the love that builds up, the love for God, the love for brother, the love that sacrifices to serve the good of others. Please, Lord, work this text into our fellowship of believers here. Use this sermon to that end. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The Bible, in numerous places, is unequivocally clear uh, that to get drunk with wine is a sin. Uh, To become inebriated, to become drunk with alcohol, to become drunk with wine is sinful. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we should not be those who use wine or beer or strong drink to become intoxicated uh, out of love for God, love for our neighbor, love for our own souls. We ought not to get drunk with wine. And furthermore, there are reasons to believe, I think, in the Scriptures that if there are those who uh, struggle to even drink wine in moderation, alcohol in moderation, that they should not drink alcohol at all. If we're to make no provision for the flesh, if those tempted or ensnared toward lust or even to pluck out eyes and cut off hands, we should be ready uh, not even to put ourselves in a situation where we might become ensnared by the use of alcohol, wine, strong drink. That said, the Bible does not teach that drinking wine is inherently sinful. The Bible does not teach that drinking wine is inherently sinful. 
Psalm 104 tells us that God gave wine for the gladdening of men's hearts. Uh, In uh, the world to come, it's described by the prophets as an age that will have an abundance of well-aged wine. Jesus, in his very first miracle recorded in John 2, turned water into wine. And despite the attempts of many fundamentalist scholars to try to prove that that was not real wine or alcoholic wine, Uh, That interpretation will not hold up. Uh, Jesus himself probably served wine at the Lord's Supper. Jesus certainly drank wine himself. Paul encourages Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. On the basis of these texts and others that I could cite, uh, we know, I believe, that drinking wine in and of itself is not sinful. Okay, I want you to imagine Bob and Betty Bob is a deacon in the church, his wife Betty, they've served the Lord faithfully in their church for many years. They've gotten to know their sister, Jane, and uh, Jane is in a situation where she needs to uh, have a room she could rent somewhere, have a living situation uh, for herself, and she makes that uh, known, and uh, Bob and Betty happen to have a spare room in their basement. Uh, that they have been renting out for cheap for Christians who maybe have fallen on hard times or have need for a space like that. And so they welcome Jane into their home to live in their little basement apartment. And Bob and Betty have a very generous arrangement with Jane. They're going to give her very cheap rent. And they, more than that, are going to invite her on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday uh, to come upstairs and eat dinner with them. Uh, Tuesday, Thursday, kind of do your own thing, maybe over the weekend do your own thing, but Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, come upstairs and have dinner with us. That's the arrangement with Bob and Betty. Uh, Bob and Betty like to enjoy a glass of wine in the evening with dinner. They believe that is their Christian liberty. They believe they can receive this as a good gift from God, and so that's their practice. As Jane lives with them in their basement apartment and through just being in the house together, uh, seeing each other maybe in the front yard when they're coming home from work and things like that, Betty discovers that Jane uh, actually has a pretty bad history with alcohol. Uh, Jane was addicted to alcohol at one point, and she has since renounced that sin. But because of her background uh, in addiction, uh, she has determined that she will never drink alcohol again. She's sworn it off. As a responsible Christian, she has decided, I'm not going to drink this anymore because this has ensnared me into sin and was nearly ruinous for my life. And out of love for Christ, out of commitment to his cause, I'm not going to drink this anymore. And she struggles a little bit at times to think that it's even wrong for all Christians to drink alcohol, though at her best moment she knows that the Bible doesn't actually teach that. So Jane comes upstairs for dinner. Betty has related this knowledge to her husband, Bob. It would be their normal routine on Monday nights, for Betty to pour a glass of wine for herself and for Bob. What do Bob and Betty do? 1 Corinthians 8 is an immensely relevant passage for the church, one that I think church members must grasp if they're to successfully live in harmony and unity together over decades. This church, under the blessing of God, has existed for a little over six years. Uh, If this church is going to be here as a healthy, strong, and stable congregation of the Lord's people 60 years from now, we will have to understand passages like 1 Corinthians 8. Maybe also parallel passages like Romans 14, which speaks to matters of conscience, though not exactly identical. I do think if we're to understand that passage and this passage we have in 1 Corinthians 8, they will serve well the health and unity and longevity of local churches. We're only going to look at 1 Corinthians 8 today. Uh, I mentioned last week that I've wanted to preach this passage for a long time. Uh, This is the fourth uh, message in a series of four topical sermons. Uh, So we've come to the end of the topical messages. Next week we'll be in our Advent series for four weeks and then we'll pick up soon in the Gospel of Matthew again. Uh, Two points this morning. We'll consider first the problem present in Corinth. The problem present in Corinth. And then we'll consider, secondly, the principle promoted by Paul. Consider with me first the problem present in Corinth. Three things to observe here in terms of this problem, this situation present in Corinth. First thing to observe is this. There is disagreement over whether or not it is legitimate to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I mean, that's 
the simplest summary of the problem. There is disagreement in the church over whether or not it is legitimate to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I personally think the Corinthians likely wrote to Paul directly about this issue. Uh, Paul seems to transition in 1 Corinthians 7 in verse 1 uh, to address what he calls the matters about which you wrote. I think what we should do with meat sacrificed to idols was one of those issues that uh, they wrote to Paul about. Now, there is some scholarly debate over what precisely is in view here in chapter 8. There are a number of scenarios we can envision. I'll mention just three, though there are more options than three. Uh, Paul could have in view here eat, uh, excuse me, meat that was used as part of a ritual sacrifice to an idol or false god and is now being sold in the market or served in the home of a pagan. So you had some ritual, some sacrifice uh, that was offered in a pagan temple. Uh, now it's being made available in the marketplace or in the home of a pagan. Uh, a second scenario could be, could have in view, a meat that was in some way consecrated to an idol or devoted to an idol, maybe not actually sacrificed in the temple, but it was like dedicated to a false god and is now, again, being sold in the market or offered in the home of a pagan. Or a third scenario some scholars think is going on here, Paul could have in view here Christians actually eating meat uh, in an actual pagan temple. Uh, so the ritual just happened. There were often restaurants and opportunities to serve meat in connection to the temple compound, and Christians would go there perhaps and eat the meat. We don't know exactly the scenario that's in view here, but I think we can at least say that apparently there was meat that was being made available to Christians in Corinth, whether in the market or in the home of a pagan or in connection to a pagan temple, and Christians in Corinth differed over whether or not it was permissible for a Christian to eat this meat, which had in some way been associated with idolatry. We don't know exactly how, but in some way had been associated with idolatry. Uh, honestly, I don't think we need to know much more than that to understand what Paul is teaching us in this passage. Now, this issue of whether or not Christians may eat meat sacrificed to idols, this may seem like a rather obscure and insignificant issue to us, but it wasn't to them. You may think, I have never had this crisis of conscience over whether or not to eat meat that had been offered in a pagan temple. I'm sure we have our own crises of conscience that would appear peculiar to saints in the first century. Okay, this may appear peculiar to us, but this was a relevant live issue for the saints in Corinth, for them in their context, where they would have been surrounded by paganism everywhere they went, and various expressions of idolatry in their communities. We don't know how much meat in Corinth was associated with idols. It could be that finding meat that wasn't somehow associated with idols was actually very hard for Christians to do, and members of this church felt conflicted over this. You had Christians in the same church taking different sides on this issue. So try, if you would, to appreciate the different sides here. On the one hand, some believed that eating such meat was inherently wrong and sinful. Uh, they reasoned in this way. This meat, being sold in the marketplace, offered in a pagan's home, what have you, this meat has been consecrated by pagans, and it has been used for pagan ends. It is associated with idolatry. If we eat this meat, we will be endorsing pagan idolatry, maybe even in some way, by association, participating in pagan idolatry. And as Christians, we know we're to have no fellowship with darkness. No, we cannot eat this meat. Yes. One side. On the other hand, you had others who believed eating this meat was not inherently sinful. After all, God has given us all things richly to enjoy, and we know there is no such thing as an idol or a false god in truth. I don't think that idol actually corresponds to a real deity. That would just be superstition at the end of the day. Though this food may have been associated with idols, we know, don't we, as Christians, there is only one true God. And therefore, we should not believe this meat is in some way spoiled or contaminated by association with an idol. To believe it to be contaminated would actually be to lend credence to the idea that there really are other gods, that somehow a god has come down and inhabited and contaminated this meat. We know there's no such thing. Now, to eat such meat, these brothers and sisters held, would be fine. It does not imply any kind of endorsement of idolatry or participation in wickedness to eat this meat. We recognize this meat for what it is, a good gift from the one true God for his people to enjoy, not some consecrated morsel for a false god or something like that. Those are basic sketches of the sides as I understand them. Now, I want to briefly note something 
about the nature of this disagreement. I think it's crucial to understand if we're going to make the best use of 1 Corinthians 8 for our own church. This is not a disagreement over an essential article of faith. Hopefully you see that. This is not a debate over whether or not Christ has risen from the dead. On that point, Paul will not tolerate diversity of opinion. See 1 Corinthians 15. This is not a debate over whether or not someone may live in sexual immorality and be regarded as a Christian. No, Paul won't tolerate diversity of opinion there either. See 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Paul recognizes this debate in 1 Corinthians 8 is a legitimate debate for people to have within the same church. And his solution is not going to be to impose uniformity of opinion on the congregation. Or to say, like he says in 1 Corinthians 5, that you need to discipline the brother or sister eating this meat or not eating this meat. He expects, apparently, Christians can exist in the same church while differing over this point. You see that? Okay, observe secondly now, under this first main point, the problem present in Corinth, what else do we observe? Secondly, Paul actually makes a determination as to who is right on the issue from a doctrinal standpoint. Paul actually makes a determination as to who is right on the issue from a doctrinal standpoint. Look at this in verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You follow his argument? He's saying that there are no other gods but one. And people can pretend like they're offering this meat to a god, but that's all a farce. It's all a superstition. Uh, No God is actually receiving that offering or contaminating that meat. We know, though people pretend there are idols and false gods, we know there is only one God. I think he's saying, we we know the meat's not contaminated. We know there is only one God. There's no such thing as an idol. There's no such thing as a false God. And Paul seems to go even further by saying, not only does that meat not belong to an idol and not become contaminated by association, it actually belongs to God to be used and enjoyed for his purposes. In verse 6, Paul reminds them all things come from God and all things exist for God, including that meat. That meat, though offered to an idol, may still be sanctified for godly use. So you who think eating the meat is permissible, you are right from a doctrinal standpoint. If you were wondering at the start of this sermon and you guessed, I think actually I'm in the eating meat category. Congratulations, you're right. From a doctrinal point of view, eating the meat is not inherently sinful. Paul is clearly falling on the side of those who conclude it is valid for Christians to eat the meat, at least from a doctrinal standpoint. Now, that said, this doesn't settle the issue for Paul. He's actually about to say that's not the point. Uh, So before all the meat eaters uh, thump their chest and pronounce victory over their brethren. Ha ha, we got it right at the end of the day. We knew this was totally fine, and we're going to have a potluck, and we're going to bring all that meat that was sacrificed to idols, and we're going to serve it to the church at the next potluck gathering. Paul says, not so fast. There's more to this issue. A third observation now, third and last observation. Paul urges, thirdly, the strong to be sensitive to the weak on this issue. Paul urges the strong to be sensitive to the weak on this issue. Now, we need to read these next few verses very carefully if we're to understand Paul's argument. Look at verse 7. After just saying, nothing wrong with the meat. We know there's only one God. No such thing as an idol. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols... Eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Okay, stop there. What is Paul saying in verse 7? He's saying, some of you Corinthians may be grasped and appreciate and understand the theological argument I've just made in verses 4 through 6, but there are others in the church who don't grasp what I've said. 
In other words, not every member in the church is in the same place in terms of their understanding on these issues. And you have to recognize that. You have some people in the church who just converted from paganism. And their connections with idolatry in the past are so recent that they think that eating this meat is sinful. Of course, Paul's saying, I know, as some of you know, it isn't. But they think it is due to their experience and due to their past association with idols. They have weak consciences. And if they were to eat the meat, there is no way, based on their experience and their former life in paganism, that they can dissociate that act from actual idolatry. And if you push this on them, you can do real damage to their consciences. And you can actually lead them into sin. Eating meat sacrificed to idols may not be strictly wrong, but acting against one's conscience is always wrong. And that's the issue for Paul. So then he says, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He's saying, look, what is the value added to your spiritual status, your spiritual life by eating this meat? You don't gain anything by eating and you don't lose anything by not eating. This shouldn't be a big issue uh, to you who are strong in your conscience. You should be able to take it or leave it, which frees you to allow larger spiritual matters to shape what you do here. Like concern for your brothers and sisters. That should dominate your thinking more so than your own Christian liberty. You don't need to be strong Christians, so protective, so turfy with your freedom and your rights. You can give them up. And that's where he goes next, verse 9. But take care that this right of yours, he concedes it's a right. You're, you're free to eat the meat. It's not a sin. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So by using this right, employing this freedom, and parading it before others, I could present a stumbling block to my brethren who see this issue differently than I do. Now, I should say a word on that phrase, stumbling block. A lot of people today use that phrase in a way the Bible does not countenance. For some people, when they talk about a stumbling block, it just seems to be anything that they don't like. Oh, well, you can't have drums in the service because that presents a stumbling block to me. Well, not if you don't think it's sinful, it doesn't. Just because you may not like the sound of drums, that doesn't make it a stumbling block. I heard this a lot during COVID, whether or not you wear a mask or not is a stumbling block. Not unless you've concluded it would be sinful for you to wear the mask or not wear the mask. A stumbling block is some kind of obstacle introduced to you that actually induces you to sin against God, like the kind of sin for which Jesus shed his blood. Stumbling blocks are not matters of preference. They are things that actually lead us, induce us into sin. And Paul is saying, you who think eating this meat is fine, you may unwittingly present a stumbling block to the weak and induce them to sin. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Here's John. He has a history in paganism. He so associates that meat with the actual idolatry he lived in. He used to pray that pagan spirits would inhabit him. And he can't see the meat any other way now based on his association with that kind of meat in his former life. And here's Joseph. And well, Joseph's a godly brother. And Joseph's discipling me after all. And he seems to be a good husband and a good dad and seems to love the Lord. And he's, he's inviting me to come down with him outside the pagan temple restaurant to enjoy some of this meat. Like, what am I supposed to do? The strong could induce their brothers to sin. Uh, they were emboldened by the conduct of the strong to commit behavior they had judged to be sinful against Christ. Then verse 11, and so, he says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. He's saying, think about this person. Don't just think about your right or your freedom. Think about the brother for whom Christ died. In other words, we're not just having a theoretical argument here. Let's have a philosophical debate over what's really happening with this meat. It's not just about the argument. P. 
people's souls and their spiritual well-being are intertwined with this stuff, and you need to look out for them and be cognizant of how your actions and your use, your parading of your freedoms may affect them. Then verse 12, if you look at verse 12, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul calls this not just inducing the brother to sin, but you yourself are sinning against them. By parading your freedom, by inducing others to participate in the thing they have judged to be sinful, you are sinning against your brother, sinning against your sister, and he says even sinning against Christ himself. And then verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is saying that if my rights and my freedom will create an occasion for my brother to stumble, my brother to sin, then the demands of love require that I refrain from eating this meat altogether. If by eating this meat, I wittingly or unwittingly encourage the weak to violate their consciences, he says, basically, I'm going vegan. I give up the meat. I don't need it. Don't gain anything by eating it. Don't lose anything by not eating it. My brother's soul is more important. In other words, you who are strong, you who have knowledge, love and sensitivity and sympathy for the weaker brother will lead you to suspend your rights, to suspend your freedom, or better yet, to submit your freedom to his edification and his upbuilding and his preservation. You who are strong, who may be in the superior position in terms of knowledge and understanding and doctrine, you ought to accommodate yourself to the weaknesses of your brothers or sisters who are not as well taught and well informed as you. You ought to be willing to sacrifice your rights to accommodate the person with the weaker conscience and the person who may have a less mature view of the issue than you. Now, I'll say on this, the point is not that you are to become a slave to the petty preferences of your brothers and sisters. It's not to say that those who are weak can say, ha ha, you have to do everything my way now. See, Paul said it right there. That would be a manipulation of this passage. In Romans 14, in the parallel passage, Paul will encourage the weak not to judge their brothers in their freedom. If they can do this or that as unto the Lord privately, you're not to intrude. Judge your brother or sister. This is about the parading and flaunting of liberties in the public family of God. And in those settings, the strong must defer when it comes to their rights and their freedoms. Okay, now let's consider secondly in the time that remains. We've seen the problem present in Corinth. Consider with me now the principle promoted by Paul. The principle promoted by Paul. I should probably use a stronger verb than promoted, but you can see the PRPR thing. <laughs> it's an imperative, it's a requirement. It's not just something he's promoting. In this passage, Paul uses this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols to promote a particular principle. So hopefully you've, you've gotten this so far in this sermon. I'm not really concerned about how this congregation treats the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, concerned about the principle Paul is establishing through this example that applies, I think, to thousands of other things. There's a principle he wants to establish. He expresses it in various ways throughout the chapter. He summarizes it best, perhaps, I think, in the second half of verse 1. Look at the second half of verse 1. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, it's important that we recognize what Paul is not saying here when he says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Two things he's not saying, I don't think. First of all, Paul is not saying that every effort to understand truth, to understand doctrine, to grow in the knowledge of God and his word is bad and only leads to spiritual pride. But love, well, love wins. Doctrine divides, doctrine fractures the Christian community, doctrine creates wars, doctrine offends people, but love unites, love wins. You people obsessed with your equipped classes and you want to go read the Puritans and study systematic theology, that just all puffs up. But you need to get busy loving people, that's where it's at. Okay, I abhor that way of thinking. And I think the Apostle Paul would abhor that way of thinking. 
Paul will not be well cast in the role of the anti-doctrine, anti-knowledge guy. No less than 10 times in this epistle, he says, do you not know? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You ought to know stuff. You ought to have knowledge about stuff. Paul gave his life to helping people grow in knowledge. He prays for it all the time, for goodness sakes. I mean, you think of Paul's recorded prayers, uh, like uh, the one uh, in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, uh, or the prayer at the opening of the epistle to the Philippians, or the prayer at the opening to uh, the book of Colossians. I'll read the one from Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, so we cannot accept the idea that Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 8 is doctrine bad, love good. You people who are intent on knowing stuff, you just got to chill out, stop worrying about doctrine, and get busy loving people. Uh, I'll just say before leaving what I hope is a very obvious point here. I just want to urge you, brothers and sisters, to eschew uh, this immature and facile understanding of this passage. You will hear this quite a lot. People who are interested in growing in doctrine, that's somehow a bad thing. People who are intent on knowing the truth better, that's just a distraction. What we really need to do is love people. Brothers and sisters, that's a dangerous idea. And it's not one countenanced by the writers of Scripture. We should love knowledge. We should want to grow in doctrine about God and man and grace and sin and the gospel. Doctrine is our friend. We should be increasing always in the knowledge of God. Do not agree to the fallacy that says knowledge is contrary to love. So we can't accept that idea that Paul is against all knowledge or he's anti-doctrine. But a second thing I think he's not saying, I don't think Paul is condemning every opinion or conviction or doctrinal stance that offends people. Some people will abuse what Paul is saying here and argue, well, if your doctrinal positions have the effect of offending people or making them uncomfortable or hurting their feelings, well, that's bad and you failed to love people. If your doctrine tells somebody to deny their identity, it must be bad doctrine. If your doctrine tells someone they can't love whoever they want, it's bad doctrine. If your doctrine causes someone to feel ashamed about themselves, it must be bad doctrine. If your doctrine forces a man or a woman to stay in a marriage that makes them unhappy, it's a bad doctrine. If that's what your knowledge and your doctrine does, well, we'd as soon just do without it. Thank you very much. No, that won't do either. When Paul says something so offensive as that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's not violating his principle here in 1 Corinthians 8. When he tells husbands, no, no husbands, stay in that marriage, lay down your lives and sacrifice for your wife. No wives, sub- submit to your own husbands as the church submits to Christ. He's not violating this principle that knowledge puffs up but love builds up. The test of right doctrine and pure love is not ultimately whether or not people are offended by it. That's not what Paul's point is here. Okay, so we understand what Paul is not saying. But positively now, what is Paul saying when he says this knowledge puffs up but love builds up. I think he must have a particular type of knowledge in view here, or a particular way of wielding one's knowledge, or maybe both. Uh, The ESV, if you're reading in the ESV, the translation I've been reading in, the ESV tries to highlight this by two interpretive decisions it makes in its translation of verse 1. First of all, they supply the word this before the word knowledge, so that it says this knowledge puffs up. They also put quotation marks around the word knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. Uh, Neither the word this or the quotation marks are there in the Greek. However, leaving aside the question of whether or not they should do that in their translation work, I do think the interpretive point they're making is correct. So the point they're trying to get across by this knowledge and the quotation, I do think their point is an accurate point. Paul is talking about a particular type of knowledge 
And he wants to isolate that particular type of knowledge and that particular way of wielding that type of knowledge, and he wants to analyze both it and its fruits. This kind of knowledge, we're told, puffs up, and it is placed in contrast to the love that builds up. So let's consider in the time that remains briefly the knowledge that puffs up and the love that builds up, and then we'll close. Okay? Consider with me the knowledge that puffs up. Again, remember, Paul is not just talking about all knowledge, period. If you, if you read Wayne Grudem, or if you come to Equip Class at 915, or you come to the Reformation Theology Seminar on Sunday night, he's not saying to avoid those settings. He's talking about a certain type of knowledge, a certain way of wielding that knowledge. So what is this knowledge? I think this knowledge that Paul speaks of is characterized by a kind of doctrinal exactness devoid of love. A kind of doctrinal exactness devoid of love. It is a kind of knowledge that has as its singular goal not love or edification, but the bare virtue of being right. It has the effect of inflating one's pride, not edifying other people. This knowledge is guilty of the fallacy that says all that matters is being right, and if you're right, it doesn't matter how you act or behave as long as you've got the truth on your side, as long as you can prove your point and win the argument. But Paul is saying here that there is a sense in which you can be right with respect to knowledge and wrong with respect to love. Anyone who has ever been married for any length of time should know from experience exactly what I'm talking about right now. Like you can be right on the issue and still be unloving and insensitive. Brother or sister, you must not allow yourself to think that being right is all that matters. As long as I win the argument, as long as I can prove my point, doesn't matter how I behave toward others. Friends, this kind of knowledge Paul speaks of puffs people up with pride and it can cause them to become boorish and arrogant and abrasive. It can cause them to parade their opinions and trumpet their rights and do real injury to others. This is the younger man or older man who is an outspoken and arrogant doctrinalist who cares little for those around him and is simply focused on a kind of rigid, logical exactness that he thinks gives him the right to be insensitive to others. Winning people and persuading people and loving people is not his goal. But being right down to the last jot and tittle is his goal. And his rightness, he believes, gives him the freedom to say and do as he chooses within the Christian community, irrespective of how his conduct affects his fellow brothers and sisters. This is the younger woman, or older woman, who is concerned about scoring points over and above her sister in Christ. The woman who is concerned most about winning the argument, even if that means losing her sister. This is the woman who is unable to defer to others, especially when she thinks she's right. She is unable to forbear with the weak because after all, she's right and they're wrong and that's all that matters. This is the woman unable to sacrifice her rights and her freedoms and her desires in service to others, but instead demands that no one intrude on her freedom and her rights and her preferences. Paul is concerned with this kind of knowledge. And this kind of knowledge and this way of wielding it has at least three negative effects that are identified in this passage. First, it has the effect of puffing the person up with pride, as I've said. Look at me and how much I know I really am something. I have all my doctrines in a neat little row. I can tell you how everything fits into my system. I can adjudicate all doctrinal and practical disputes. I possess knowledge. And this person becomes inflated with pride over what they know and how much they know and what their knowledge gives them the freedom to do. Second negative effect, it has the effect of making the person insensitive and unloving toward other people. These people are devoid of love for their brethren. They wield their knowledge like a weapon in the family of God. They think their knowledge gives them the right to say and do as they please. And what's worse, they think their knowledge gives them the right to be insensitive to the consciences of their brethren. And that leads to the third ill effect of this kind of knowledge. It has the effect of actually destroying their brothers and sisters. By their knowledge, they induce people to actually violate their consciences and to actually sin. And in so doing, this person, this strong person, by his or her knowledge, actually sins against Christ by destroying the brother or sister for whom Christ died. 
This knowledge puffs up the possessor of the knowledge and fails to build up the people around him. It rather destroys him. Friends, this is knowledge without wisdom. Knowledge devoid of context. Knowledge apart from relationship. Knowledge without love. And Paul will say, just a couple of chapters later in 1 Corinthians 13, I could speak with the tongues of men and angels. I can know all prophecy. I can have all knowledge. But if I have not love, I am nothing. Knowledge without love is nothing. Now you may be sitting here and you're hearing all this and you're wondering, okay, am I guilty of this? Have I been guilty of this kind of knowing? I mean, I love the Bible. I love doctrine. I went to the equip class. I was even one of the nerds who went to the Reformation history class a few months ago. Am I the arrogant doctrinalist? Am I guilty of this knowledge that puffs up? Two good questions to ask yourself to help diagnose whether or not this is a problem in your life. First, the knowledge that I possess, the knowledge that I seek, what is its goal? What is its goal? Is it so that I may better love God? Better love His people? Better walk in humility and Christ-likeness? Or is it so that I might win debates and establish my standing as superior in the church community? Is it so that I can just secure my rights and my freedoms and use them in whatever way I wish? Or is love my goal? That's a good question to ask. A second question you might ask, what is the actual outcome of the knowledge I accumulate? What is the actual outcome? Regardless of my goal, what's the outcome? Does it make me more selfish? Does it offend and hurt and alienate my wife, my husband, my brothers and sisters? Am I dividing Christ's body and destroying Christ's sheep with my knowledge? Or does it have the outcome of serving and blessing the Christian community? Of building up and edifying those around me. Friends, that's the knowledge that puffs up. Consider with me now briefly, and then we'll draw to a close, the love that builds up. The love that builds up. Three brief things to see about the love that builds up. First, it has its origin in love for God. It has its origin in love for God. A look at verse 1b. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Uh, Verses 2 and 3 are a little difficult to interpret, I'll admit. But I do think Paul is, in a sense, mirroring the categories he just presented in verse 1. So verse 2, for example about knowledge maps on his statement, this knowledge puffs up, and verse three maps onto his statement, but love builds up. There's a kind of synonymous or connected relationship between uh, 1b in verse two and 1c in verse three. Verse three maps onto the love that builds up, but if anyone loves God, if you're possessed by that love that builds up, it has its origin in love for God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. In other words, the love that builds up starts as love for God before it becomes love for our fellows. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. That means he's approved by God. He is owned of God. This love that builds up is in the first instance an expression of love for God. Now secondly, this love that builds up has a different goal than the knowledge that puffs up. The love that builds up has as its goal the edification and encouragement of others. My concern with my love is not to promote myself or to establish my rights or to win the argument or to subordinate my brethren and elevate myself. My concern is rather with the well-being of my brothers and sisters. I want my knowledge to serve their edification, their upbuilding, their growth. I don't want my knowledge to harm anyone in the family of God. This love that builds up labors for unity and harmony in the family of God and puts one's knowledge in service to the edification of the body. The love that builds up is not like the knowledge that puffs up. The knowledge that puffs up is centered all in self. The love that builds up is centered all in others. This is the attitude we're to have. But then a third and final thing we can note about the love that builds up It's probably the most important. 
The love that builds up actually makes sacrifices in service to others. The love that builds up actually makes sacrifices in service to others. Friends, love does not flaunt its freedoms. It's Christian liberty. Rather, love is willing to suspend its rights and its freedoms. Love subordinates its freedoms to serve others. Love says, sure, perhaps based on knowledge, I have this right and I have this freedom. But if by exercising my rights and my freedom, I injure you, I will suspend my rights. I will defer. Though I may be right from the standpoint of the argument, I have a larger goal than proving my point. And that is building you up, loving you, supporting you, deferring to you. See, these Corinthians had to see the welfare of their brethren as more important than their Christian freedom. Brothers and sisters, we must see the welfare of one another as more important than our Christian freedoms, than our rights. I ask you, what kind of sacrifices are you willing to make to serve the personal welfare and spiritual help of your brothers and sisters? Would any of us change our diet to serve the sanctification of others in this church? I love red meat as much as the next guy. Would you give it up to serve the edification, sanctification? of your brothers and sisters? How about your entertainments? I have the right to watch this, don't you know? I've thought it through, and I know based on the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man and the doctrine of creation, I can enjoy this entertainment, this concert, this movie, whatever it is, to the glory of God. I've worked it all out. I have my arguments ready, and I can refer you to point 12C, which really seals the deal. Would you give up those sorts of things? to serve the health and growth, preservation, the soul of your brother or sister? Would you change your schedule? Would you accommodate what you wear? I have a right to wear this. There's no law against skirts above the knee. Would you change how you speak? The church is to be filled with men and women who, as Paul will say elsewhere, outdo one another in showing honor. It is to be a place marked by mutual deference. Friends, the mature know how to defer. It is to be a place of forbearance and love. I am not concerned ultimately with establishing my own rights or defending my freedoms or what I regard as my just desserts. I am not consumed with asserting myself and my knowledge and my place and my standing. The love that builds up stands ever ready to sacrifice for others, to lay down for others, to forego privileges and rights in service to others. So I return now to my opening illustration about Bob and Betty. Sister Jane, coming to dinner Monday night. Well, we really enjoy our glass of wine with dinner. But we love Jane more. And you know what? Wine will not commend us to God. We are no better off if we drink, no worse off if we don't. We can suspend our freedom tonight to serve her sanctification, to serve her growth, to serve her health. Far be it from me to use my liberty and my freedom to crush the one for whom Christ died, 
to induce by my conduct and my exercising of my rights and my flaunting of my freedoms to hurt my sister and to induce her to sin. Uh, Friends, this is not a doctrine of slavery to the consciences of others. You can enjoy your Christian freedoms privately in your home. You're not to flaunt them in ways that injure your brothers and sisters. That is the principle established. We should eschew knowledge that puffs up and pursue rather that love that builds up. We should be ready to do this for one another, to suspend our rights and our freedoms in service to the edification and sanctification of our brothers and sisters. And friends, is this not the very thing that Christ himself did for us? Christ, the Son of God, the Word, who was in the beginning, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, Philippians 2. Didn't cling to his rights. He made himself of no reputation, taking to himself the form of a servant. Oh, by rights, I don't have to serve you. By rights, I can assert my authority. By rights, I can come down off this cross and damn you. But by love, I will serve. By love, I will humble myself. And friends, you you may think I'm abusing that passage. I'm using it in precisely the way Paul intended it. Why does Paul tell us this about Jesus? He tells us this right after he says, do nothing from from selfish ambition or conceit. But count others' interests more important than your own. Your good, your edification, your sanctification. And if I got to sacrifice or adjust the menu or change where we're going to be congregating and hanging out on Friday night, oh, I can do that. To love and serve my brothers and sisters. Look how Christ in the gospel accommodated himself to my weakness, that my soul would be saved. Can that not fuel our humility toward one another? our service to one another, our sacrifice to one another in this body. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that the beauty and dictates of love would govern our shared life together in this church. We pray that love would prevail in all of our relationships, especially our relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church. You have again and again spoken in your word, in every book of the New Testament even, of the beauty and virtue of love. May love be desirable to us. May we give ourselves to love. May we not grow weary in loving one another earnestly. May we be devoted to the good of others more so than our own rights and freedoms. May we love the edification of our brethren more than we love winning arguments. May we not be servants of ourselves, but servants of Christ and servants of our brethren. Father, we pray that you give us wisdom in how to apply this in our lives. Uh, Show me, show all of us the ways we need to be more sensitive to our brothers and sisters ways that we can more live in accord with the love that builds up. We pray, Lord, that no one would misunderstand this message or adopt distorted views based on this text. Help us to know and believe all things in Christ and to have the mind of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Help us, Lord, to achieve unity and harmony in these things. Pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.